In case you haven't heard, uh, it's Mother's Day today. Happy Mother's Day. Um, And in honor of Mother's Day, I'd love to share with you a story that is actually one of the first memories that I have as a kid growing up in the church that my family was part of. Um, uh, I don't remember what age I was. I don't remember what time of year it was. And so because the date is not really set in stone in the history book of the Blashinskys, let's just assume for our creative imagination that we are worshiping together on a lovely Mother's Day Sunday. All right? And I have a younger sister, and um, she's, she's about a little older than Ripley Goolsby is right now. And my mom is holding her in worship, and the congregation is a lot like this one. They sing really loudly. So as they are singing, the hymn, um, my sister is trying to whisper kindly over to my mom because we were raised with really good manners to say things politely. And so my sister is trying to get my mom's attention to tell her that something's awry. And so my mom is holding her and, and my sister keeps whispering and my mom keeps saying, you need to speak up. I can't hear you. And all of a sudden the music stops and in the loudest voice possible, my sister screams, Mom, you're hurting my left butt. <laughs> Was that an appropriate joke for me to tell from the pulpit? I don't know, but I told it in the last, uh, in the last service, and my, uh, my antagonistic boss didn't pull me aside afterwards, so we're going we're gonna to assume it's fine. But yes, happy Mother's Day to all of our moms out there. Um, Happy Mother's Day to all of you who have a mom, who are a son or a daughter. Um, This is a great day that we get to celebrate for all of the women who have meant a lot in our lives. And so if you have not called your mom yet um, and you have the ability to, we encourage you to do so. But we also want to create space and set aside space this morning knowing this. For many of us, Mother's Day is hard. And for most of us, there's at least some ping in our hearts that know that that Mother's Day has a hardship. For some of you, Mother's Day is hard because you had a complicated relationship with your mother in the past. Many of you have mothers where promises were not kept or relationships were hard and, and you never saw or have not seen the restoration of that relationship. Some of us have lost our mothers and we grieve the space that we hold in our heart for our moms. And other of us have failed to be mothers ourselves, having dreams and hopes and longings that have not been met on this side of eternity. For many of us, Mother's Day is a day that is complicated. It's good that we celebrate women and mothers on this hand, and it's hard because we have our unmet longings and expectations that have not been met. And we create space on this day to recognize and observe and give weight to both realities. We say that the kingdom of heaven is already not yet. There is part of the gospel that we have seen in full, and there's others that we are waiting to be fulfilled on the other side of this life in eternity. And Mother's Day is a day that we hold on to the already and not yet of the greatness of what God has accomplished through our mothers and the hardship of motherhood, lack of motherhood, or the grief and pain that is associated with it. We give space for both on this day. And so as we talk about Mother's Day and as we celebrate Mother's Day and observe Mother's Day and all that it has as a church, I've, I've been wondering how we um, teach or 
give word and weight in the sermon to Mother's Day today. Um, and I was scrolling, and I wanted to share with you first um, a, a, a study that was done by the Barna Group. So Barna, they do a lot of research. They're really good. Um, and this study was done about the importance of mothers on a child's spiritual formation. Um, and part of the study says this, practicing Christians in their teen years consistently identify mothers as the ones who provide spiritual guidance and instruction and instill the values and disciplines of their faith in the household. Moms are their foremost partners in prayer at 63% and conversations about God at 70%, the Bible 71%, and other faith questions at 72%. This is consistent with Barna data throughout the years that show mothers to be the managers of faith formation among other household routines and structures. Mothers are also the ones encouraging church attendance at 79% or teaching kids about the Bible, 66%, God's forgiveness, 66%, and religious traditions at 72%. There's a lot of data in this research, but here's the gist of it. Moms are extremely important in our faith formation. And so the question that I began asking is, is how do we give space to encourage men and women to serve alongside one another to proclaim and advance the mission of the gospel in not only our church, but our families and the community at large? Because I believe that in order to do what the church has been tasked to do, we need both men and women to serve together in leadership to bring this forward. And for many of us, this conversation about men and women serving together in leadership in the church is somewhat complicated because, to be completely honest, the American church has not done a great job at observing the importance that women have in, in leading people to faith and leading the faith of our churches. It's why we spend every Mother's Day talking about moms here in the church because we honestly need to apologize to the women who have been faithfully serving in the backgrounds and the shadows while we have gotten caught up in the debate about what the limitations or of men and women in leadership are. We, we need to apologize, repent of that. And what I want to do for us this morning is to get a biblical guideline for this vision for men and women serving together in the church that doesn't just say the Bible makes room or allows it, that actually says, and I want to create an argument and share an argument that claims that the Bible says that men and women serving in leadership for the church is essential to the mission of God. And so, um, as we go, and before we go anywhere further, how about we pray together? God, we thank you that you are present in this space and that you are working and moving. And so, as we, as we tackle what is honestly an emotionally charged issue, um, I pray that your grace would pervade um, and persist that you would meet us and that your word, your scriptures would come alive to us as, as we catch on to a vision that you have set from the very beginning of creation. And so we pause and we give this space over to you, O Spirit of God. It is in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.
All right, so here is the plan for this morning. We're going to start with a little bit of an academic intellectual exercise because we need to lay the framework and the groundwork for the issue about men and women serving together in ministry. And then what I want to do after we've set the framework together and done some of the groundwork, I want to look at a story in Acts chapter 18 that shares a story as the gospel is moving forward and the church is advancing of men and women serving together to lead the church forward. Does that sound like a good plan? All right, so if you have your Bibles with you um, this morning, the first few uh, passages of Scripture I don't have on the screen, and so I encourage you to flip along with me, or you can pull out your Bible app, or you can turn to a neighbor and say, hey, can I look at your Bible, please? Um, I'll, get, I'll bring one next week, I promise. All right, so we're going to start the, uh, our beginning at the beginning. So if you want to open up to Genesis chapter 1, um, and we see this is the creation account in which God is forming the world. He is, his words are spoken and creation occurs. And we're going to pick up in verse 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in, the, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase, and page turn, Number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. You see, in the beginning, as God created us, he created mankind. We read in Genesis chapter one that before anything happened in the goodness, both men and women were created by God in the likeness, in the image of of God. Uh, one observation that I have here is that God has set both men and women on a mission to be rulers and have dominion over the created order. So to rule over the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea and all of the land that God had previously created and ordered. But there's one thing that man and women are not commanded to have dominion over, and that is over other men or women. And so we see in the very beginning that God God has a vision for both men and women ruling and leading his creation, his kingdom. They're to do this thing together. If we are to go forward a little bit in the creation story, and we know that after God had created both man and woman, he said it was what? Very good. Um, we continue on the story. God places them in a garden, and there is a stipulation in the garden, right? They're not supposed to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you know where the story is going, we know that Adam and Eve, man and woman, do not obey this rule but break it. And what happens is what we call in the church the fall. Sin enters, and we see that there is a distorted reality and vision for what the world is supposed to be, one that is different than God's intention for mankind. As sin enters into the world, everything that we have is distorted, including our relationship with one another. We read this as God is addressing Adam and Eve in the garden after they eat of the fruit. Um, if we pick up in, if I'm following my notes, if we pick up in verse 13, this is what it says. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this thing you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me 
and I ate. We pick up what the, the consequences of sin are for the woman and for womankind in verse 16. He says this, to the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. And here's the kicker. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. As sin enters into the world, as we see a reality of God's created world that was not meant to be and is not what it should be, we see now that there is a patriarchal hierarchy in relationships where in the beginning when things were very good, men and women were serving alongside one another, having dominion and rule over the created order, not people. And now we see in Genesis 3 as a result of the fall, as a result of mankind determining what is right and wrong in their own eyes according to their own image as they decide to become gods for themselves, we see that now men rule over women. This is an effect of sin. And we see that God, from the very beginning of the fall, God has now set in motion a plan for redemption so that the created order can be what it was meant to be all along. We see this come to fulfillment in the person of Christ, who is both fully God and fully human, who came to pay the price for our sins, to pay the price for our destruction that began in the very beginning in the garden with eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We see that Jesus on the cross and through the resurrection has paid the full debt of what we have done and has set in motion God's ultimate plan for redemption that started in the garden, continues now, and will be fulfilled when Jesus returns again. And in this plan, we see from the very beginning that God desires for both men and women to serve together. That was the very intent when things were very good, and we see that as a result of sin, there is a destructive relationship that has occurred in which men rule over women in this new order. And so, because of that, and following what Jesus has done, we come to the book of Acts, and what has happened now in Acts is Jesus has died on the cross, and the resurrection has occurred, and Jesus has now ascended into heaven um, and sits at the right hand of the Father, and now the early church um, that is gathered to follow Jesus is figuring out what does this look like now? What are the ramifications of the gospel? How do we live life together now that God's redemptive works have been set in motion, the already and not yet of the kingdom? And as they are looking to see how this occurs, we come to a story in Acts chapter 18 in which we meet this couple, Aquila and Priscilla, um, who are instrumental throughout the New Testament in starting house church movements um, that expand the church that we know today. And so we're going to pick up, and we have words on the screen for this, we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 18, and we're going to start off in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. 
We're going to pick the story up in verse 18 because in between we go to another story. This is like a show where you kind of have like cut scenes. So we're going to cut and pick the story back up in verse 18 in which we see that Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, and then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila, our friends that we met before. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at um, Secre because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised saying, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. Let's pick up with our friends Priscilla and Aquila in verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man and with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples where there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the, from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, there's a lot of things that are happening in this story, but this story is a great example of disciples making disciples that make disciples that make disciples. There are four iterations of the church moving on and people training other people to spread the good news of the gospel and to form the church as we know it today, starting as Paul um, meets this couple, Priscilla and Aquila. And one thing that we need to know about Priscilla and Aquila, and particularly about the way that women are written about in a, um ancient Near East context and in the ancient Greek, here's something important to know. If Priscilla had no role in the story, Priscilla's name never would have been mentioned. Again, if Priscilla had no role in advancing the purpose of the gospel and leading the church forward, she would not have been mentioned in this story. Furthermore, here's something important to note. Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned multiple times throughout the New Testament. We see them here in Acts. They're mentioned again in Romans. We see them in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere. And there's only about one other time uh, besides like the beginning of this passage where Aquila, the male, is mentioned before Priscilla. Most of the time when we encounter this couple who is starting house churches and advancing the kingdom of God forward through preaching and sharing and embodying the gospel, Priscilla is the first named mention. And in an ancient Near East context, this is crazy because a woman, most of the time, if she has no part in this, is not going to be mentioned. But now a woman is being listed first in the family order. What this means most likely is that Priscilla was actually of a higher standing in culture than her counterpart Aquila. 
was, um, which is very interesting to know. And we see here that they meet Paul, and Paul takes them up, he encourages them. As Paul is writing, if you look to almost any of the um, epistles that are written by Paul, so think First or Second Corinthians, Ephesians, um, these letters that are written to churches, in the end you get kind of the greeting section of like, these people say hi or say hello to these people for me. And Priscilla and Aquila are, are great friends and partners in the gospel to Paul. They're very important to him. And you see that they meet um, Paul as they're, they're leaving their place. Um, and Paul is, is, sets a relationship with them. They end up traveling with Paul as they minister for the gospel together. And then we see that Paul leaves them. He has spent time with them. He's equipped them. And now they are sent off to go equip elsewhere as, as Paul goes elsewhere as well. The, the gospel and the church is spreading and we see the effects of that in chapter 18 here. And that is where Priscilla and Aquila come into contact with who? Apollos. And Apollos, we see, has a lot of the gospel right, but he doesn't know anything other than the baptism of John. And so Priscilla and Aquila take him aside and they teach him these things more thoroughly. They train up Apollos as well so that he can be successful in the mission of the gospel. And as Apollos then goes, he sets more people up for the mission of the gospel and so on and so forth. Both Priscilla and Aquila in this story are essential to the movement of the gospel story and the expansion of the church. You see, because of the cross, because of God's redemptive purposes, what this means is that we have a vision for what should be. It is men and women serving together side by side so that every tongue may confess, every tribe may call on the name of Jesus We know this to be true because of what Paul writes in Galatians. He's talking about the ramification of the gospel and what it means. And while there are still distinctions, think about this. Male and female was still a distinction made in the very beginning in Genesis 1. There is a difference between men and women. The difference, according to the Bible, is is less so sure, but we do know that there is a difference. So there, is, there are differences, but we also know that the order that sin has created is no longer. Hear what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 3, starting verse 26. He writes, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, dividing wall, gone. Neither slave nor free, dividing wall, gone. Nor is there male and female, dividing wall, gone. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Because of Jesus, we need men and women to serve side by side. Scripture doesn't just make room for women to serve in ministry so that we can advance the cause of the gospel and proclaim and preach the word of Christ. Scripture says that we need women to serve alongside men. We need to be hand-in-hand brothers and sisters in Christ so that our neighborhoods might look more and more like the kingdom of heaven. And so, on this Mother's Day, I want to encourage each of us, male or female, to consider how we might be called to further answer the call that God has on our lives. 
How might we partner with one another as we lead this church, as we lead the movement of the church, as we commit to the message of the gospel and proclaiming Jesus Christ to the lost? How will we partner with God as we partner with one another? And as we pray this morning, I want to specifically pray for some people in our church that are intentionally taking steps of obedience um, to be trained up to be leaders in the church and leaders wherever God has called them to be. In ECO, our denomination, we love encouraging and equipping men and women to serve side by side. And we believe in leadership formation so that the next generation might be raised up and that we might see the church of the 21st century make a huge impact for Jesus Christ, the gospel, and the kingdom of heaven. And so we have a few training initiatives that our denomination has undertaken in order to accomplish this lofty task. The first of these initiatives is called the Commissioned Lay Pastor Training Program, or CLP for short. Um, this is where we take typically elders in the church, and they go through, there's a um, it's like one year at a time, a one-year process of, of learning with others in a cohort so that they might serve the local church um, and the network of churches more effectively for the gospel so that we might have partners together. And we have two individuals from our church that are going through the CLP program right now. The first is our youth director, Jonathan Goolsby, is just finishing up um, his CLP um, one credentials and is actually writing a 20-page paper right now. If you want to be like praying for him, as he is writing that paper, he would love that. Um, so Jonathan is finishing up his CLP um, one as we speak, and we have another person who has just started the CLP program, and that is um, Jim Martin. Some of you guys might know Jim, um, but Jim serves on in our presbytery. So if you don't know what a presbytery is, um, a little bit of government talk real quick. A presbytery is like the regional governing body of churches in our denomination, and Jim plays such an essential role in our presbytery. In fact, he's not here at church today because he's um, installing a pastor um, at a, and two elders at a church plant up in North, North Atlanta um, at Dunwoody Prez, who is going from a church plant to an actualized church, which is a huge thing. And Jim is, on behalf of the presbytery, is installing and ordaining those individuals today. Um, and so that's awesome. And so Jim serves as the, um, as the chair of our MPT, another acronym. I'm sure you guys are taking notes on all these acronyms used today. Um, MPT is the ministry partnership team, and it's a monumental task that Jim has eagerly said yes to um, time and time again. And so Jim has gone into the COP program so that he can be more effective in coming alongside churches in our um, presbytery and really in our national denomination so that they can flourish, um, which is an amazing task. So we're praying for Jim and Jonathan as they go through the COP program. But another really cool thing that ECO just launched, um, ECO... Um, used to say that they were never going to start a seminary. There were a lot of good seminaries out there. And over the years has really seen a need for a seminary that is going to do better hands-on training for those who are called into any type of ministry endeavor. And so 
Flourish Institute of Theology has just started, and it's an amazing answer to prayer um, that we have been praying as a denomination. And we have somebody in our church um, that has said, as a result of wanting to be faithful to God and answering the call to leadership wherever she is called, Ashley Frankie, who just led us in the liturgy this morning, has enrolled and has been accepted into the Flourish Institute of Theology, is one of really their founding members um, in seminary, and is going to be starting her classes in just a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's huge. We need Ashley. We need Jim. We need Jonathan. Frankly, we need you. If we are going to take the Great Commission seriously, if we are going to be the church that God has called us to be, both men and women need to be equipped so that they can flourish to answer God's call on their life. And so as we close in prayer, thanking God for the ways that he is raising up new leaders, and and showing his goodness. Will we be, not just in this space, but will we, as the covenant partners of Evergreen Church, will we commit to praying Ashley, Jonathan, and Jim through their training? Will we commit to praying for more leaders so that the bountiful harvest may be reaped? Let's pray. Oh God, blessed are you. O Lord, our God, maker of the universe, for you have created each person that is sitting in this room and is watching online. You have made them in your image. You have called them sons, daughters, brothers and sisters. And so I pray this morning that we would answer the call to serve alongside one another as we follow you, O Jesus. And so I thank you, Lord, that you have called Jonathan and Ashley and Jim to to serve and to undergo further training so that they may equip to answer whatever call that you have on their life, whether it be serving in pastoral ministry or, or serving in the presbytery as an elder or serving wherever you might take them. Would you strengthen them? Would you encourage them? Would you provide them with the space and time so that they might devote themselves to your teachings and to the understanding of what it means to be the church and to be your followers? We thank you in this space for the men, but today especially the women that have been instrumental in demonstrating and displaying the gospel that is your sacrificial love for us. And so we give you our thanks. We give you our praise this morning. In your name, O Jesus. Amen.